welcome to The Abstract on CFUR 88.7 FM. You can also find us online at cfur.ca. This episode is being recorded and broadcasted in the traditional territory of the Clayton Tene here in Prince George. On today's episode, we talked to a master student, Kale Babby, uh, who's working with Dr. Mark Shrimpton in the Nechaco River watershed, which is the second largest tributary to the Fraser River. Kale's looking at predation of juvenile white sturgeon by river otters. And this episode was extra fun for Jeremy and I to do because we both have done quite a bit of work on the Nechaco, which is this huge watershed that isn't necessarily always studied in the same way as some of the other mega watersheds in British Columbia. Before we dive into today's episode, we've got a track from Jason Isbell and Amanda Shires for you. River is my savior, cause she used to be a cloud. She's happy just to lay there when she used to be so proud. And even when she dries up a thousand years from now, I'll lay myself beside her and call her name out loud. The river is my savior, only one I'll ever need. Wash my head when I've been sinning, wash my knuckles when they bleed, and protect me from my neighbor. All this jealousy and greed Take the body to the delta And hide the weapon in the weed But now I'm tired And I'm a little bit confused Regarding what I meant to do And what I did And then I'm hired They all seem to be afraid of me They turn their eyes away from me like River, here's my secrets, things I cannot tell a soul Like the children that I've orphaned and the fortune that I stole And the neighbor who asks questions till he washed up on the shore But I've done the law some favors so nobody has to know But I'm tired and I just can't get to sleep I've been a wolf among these sheep for all my Lick of fire, it consumes me in my dreams. Last night I woke up screaming at my The river is my savior, she's running to the sea. To reach her destination is to simply cease to be. Running till you're nothing sounds a lot like being free. Though I'll lay myself inside her. And I'll let her carry me
the track Rivers from the duet Jason Isbell and Amanda Shires performing Jason Isbell's record Reunions live at the Brooklyn Bowl in Nashville, Tennessee. You're listening to CFUR 88.7 FM online at cfur.ca. Hello and welcome to the abstract. Today we have Kale Babby, who is a master's student here at UMBC in natural resources and environmental science. Uh, undertaking a thesis looking at river otter predation of juvenile sturgeon. Hello, Kale. Hello, how's it going? Great. And of course, we have our trusty co-host, Kristen Keita. Hello. How are you today, Kristen? I can't complain, Jeremy. We should probably note that uh, we did one interview in the studio, and then we were foiled by the pandemic once again, so... I am in my uh, bedroom at my house with a completely new mic that we haven't really used before, and Kristen's at home. Kale has been stealthily sneaking onto campus in a COVID-safe way, of course. But, uh, you know, audio challenges <laughs> be assumed. <laughs> Will abound. <Yes. laughs> uh, well, great. So, um, as per usual, Kale, we are wondering if you could just start off by uh, introducing yourself a little bit. Like, it's the first day of class. How did you find yourself uh, doing this master's at UMBC? Yeah, for sure. So, I, uh, I grew up in uh, Airdrie, Alberta, just north of Calgary. Uh, and then I moved out here to Prince George in 2012 to undertake my... Uh, a uh, bachelor's degree at UNBC in the wildlife and fisheries program. Um, and then I graduated in the spring of 2017. Uh, the summer before that, I, uh, I got a job working at the Nechakowite Sturgeon Conservation Center in Vanderhoof, BC. Um, and that was kind of my first introduction to working with sturgeon. And uh, it was a great experience, really, uh, really got to know the species and um, had, kind of gain an appreciation for them. And then uh, after I graduated the following year, I uh, ended up getting a internship back at the conservation center. So that first uh, first summer I worked there, I was mainly working in the hatchery itself. Um, so raising the juvenile sturgeon, um, feeding them, cleaning them, cleaning the tanks, things like that. Um, but the position I got after I graduated was actually more research-based. Um, so out on the river doing uh, more more research-based things. And um, it was kind of during that time that uh, working there that this issue of river otter predation of these juvenile sturgeon being released from the hatchery uh, came up. So uh, it was something that piqued my interest and kind of went from there and um, talked to the right people and, and got myself into a master's studying it. So, yeah. So I guess for people who maybe aren't familiar with uh, sturgeon or like the Nechaco system. Um, I know they're like considered an endangered species or they're red listed or something. Can you just kind of describe like why that is? And like, I don't know, as a person who has only recently like ever seen a sturgeon, like they're the most wacky yeah. creature ever. <laughs> so you maybe just like describe that to the audience who maybe doesn't know. Yeah, for sure. So, um, first of all, if you, if you haven't seen a sturgeon, as Kristen mentioned, they're pretty, pretty wacky looking. They don't, don't really look like any other kind of fish. They, kind of like dinosaur-like, and they are pretty, uh, they're, they're an old species of fish as well. Um, as far as the reason they're, they're listed that way is, or as endangered is kind of a combination of things like uh, 
habitat alteration and overfishing and uh, poaching and things like that. So um, that's kind of led to a low population of adult sturgeon in the river. Um, and I should mention uh, it's a genetically unique population. So it's the Nichaco white sturgeon. And um, yeah, so low population of adults and then um, also poor spawning success of those adults due to habitat alteration. And um, the, the young that do get produced, they have poor survival largely because of this habitat alteration. So um, one sort of mitigation method is to uh, raise sturgeon in a hatchery to get past that point, that early life stage where their survival is really poor, where they have high mortality. Um, so yeah. And, and just one other general question about the Nachaco white sturgeon. If they're yeah. a genetically distinct uh, group, how large of an area do they inhabit in the Nachaco system? Or do they make it into the Fraser? Or yeah, how far do yeah. they travel? Um, so they are, they are known to make it into the Fraser. Um, I honestly don't know quite how far down, but uh, they, they do mainly stay in the Nachaco and um, their spawning grounds, there's only one known spawning ground, and it's actually right right in uh, Vanderhoof, right at the bridge. Wow. Um, but, yeah, and, and there's, of course, the dam on the Nechaco, and um, as far as I know, there's no presence of, of them above the dam. They're all, all below. Mm. Cool. And, and so you said that while you were working as a research technician, um, that's when the alarm bells started to ring about otter predation. How did the, what were the first indications that there was a, uh, an issue with otter predation on the juvenile sturgeon? Yeah. So, um, uh, a subset of the sturgeon that are released from the hatchery get implanted with what's called a radio tag or a radio transmitter. Um, and then you can track those fish or those tags using a radio receiver. Um, and, basically some of these tags were being tracked to shore they were no longer in the water and there was evidence around these tags of potential river otter activity so things like footprints um or river otter feeding and um also chew marks on the tags which couldn't really be from any other uh predator that would be in the nachaco system um so that was that was kind of the first indication was these radio tags being found on shore so I know that you like primarily look at the otters and we'll dig, dig a lot into that in the next section, but like, is, are there other predators for these juvenile fish or is it basically just otters that are obliterating them? Yeah. So, um, at the really early life stage, so it, at a stage they'd only be found in the wild cause they get raised past that in the hatchery. Um, there is definitely other fish predators, but as far as the hatchery fish, um, there is some minor evidence so far of uh, eagle predation, um, which isn't really unsurprising. Um, and likely probably some other bird predation as well, maybe ospreys. Um, those would be kind of the two two main ones. Um, there's, I don't know about on the Nechaco, but there is evidence that uh, adult sturgeon might actually eat some, some juvenile sturgeon as well. Whoa. Yeah, but <laughs> that's, yeah, kind of hard to, to determine. I, I don't think it's been been seen in the Nechaco as far as I know. Yikes. So there are several different potential sources of predation. Um, 
what kind of sparked the concern that otters were specifically a, uh, a a real threat to the juveniles then is it just that there was a real density of otter evidence around um the chewed tags or around you know the 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 eaten up sturgeon <laughs> yeah no that'd be exactly it um because typically like a, a bird or yeah the, the tags were found in in areas of of otter predation rather than bird predation so i think that was that was kind of if you had to pick between which one it was is more likely the otters that, that it seemed to be so yeah so another question i have is like i i was under the assumption that uh sturgeon were like bottom feeders so like why like like logistically how does it work that they're getting uh like grabbed by otters and stuff yeah so um the sturgeon do spend a lot of time on the bottom um and but otters can dive pretty deep um the other thing is uh, it, it's potential the, that the otters are getting them when they're in the shallower parts of the water, maybe for feeding and things like that. Um, so yeah, otters are oppor opportunistic feeders, so they'll kind of take advantage of of where, when and where the sturgeon are, um, or just fish in general are. So yeah. Yeah. So this is like a thing that would happen naturally. Yeah. As well, it's not like just a, yeah. Okay. Yeah, it's uh, it definitely something that would happen naturally. Um, although there's actually very little document, actually almost no documentation or studies at all on otter predation of any sort of sturgeon before, um, which which is kind of cool. Makes my research pretty novel. Um, yeah. Um, and I guess we'll probably dive a little bit deeper into your methods in the next segment. But um, it sounds like you've had to kind of get to know both the sturgeon and the otters in the process. Um, have you kind of had to do quite a bit of literature review or just familiarization with both the behavior of the prey and the predator in this case? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I would say I've almost more so had to learn about the otters. Um, and the, the big reason I've had to learn about the otters, and again, as you mentioned, we'll go into methods a little bit later, but um, it involves identifying otter latrine sites. And otter latrine sites are very specific and uh, kind of require some uh, some. Or they're they're related to certain characteristics that you need to identify um, in order to to find them. And uh, I had no idea how to identify them before, so it involved a lot of literature review to to be able to determine how to how to find these latrine sites and. Um, these latrine sites are pretty pretty important to the to the study itself. Right, and I guess now that you've uh, learned from the books where to look for them, you're now traversing the uh, rivers looking for river otter porta potties. Oh yeah, all the time. You know, sometimes I'll be uh, I'll be out <laughs> fishing just just for fun on some other river, or some lake, and I just like I see something, and it's like that could be a latrine site, and I just you know I just have to check. <laughs> and uh, a lot of times, a lot of times it is, and I get honestly pretty stoked whenever I find a, a latrine site. <laughs> yeah, nice a little. Uh... Well, unfortunately, I think that has seeped into uh, one of your supervisors, who I sometimes paddle yeah. with, and is always like, "Oh, that yeah. could be a latrine <laughs> site." <laughs> yeah, for sure. <laughs> nice, nice, and. Um... I don't know. Were, were you hoping to become like a, a fish fish biologist? Or are you uh, inadvertently becoming like a a latrine specialist in the process of <laughs> masters? Yeah, yeah. You know, I, I do really enjoy the 
the whole otter aspect of it, but uh, my thing's always been fish, so I think I, I'd like to stay working with fish for sure.
That was the track Atlantic from the Toronto-based group The Weather Station. You're listening to The Abstract on CFUR 88.7 FM. Welcome back to The Abstract. Uh, today on the show, we're talking to uh, master student, Kale Babby. Um, and so we talked a little bit about it in the last segment, but Kale, can you just kind of like walk us through what a day in the field would look like for you with this otter latrine site work? Yeah, absolutely. So um, one way to study this predation is to uh, look at these uh, latrine sites. And within these latrine sites, we find uh, pit tags from sturgeon. So to back up a little bit, um, sturgeon that are released from the hatchery each get implanted with uh, what's called a pit tag. Um, and it's basically a little microchip that kind of works as a barcode. So each fish can be uniquely identified with these pit tags. And similar to a barcode at a, uh, at a grocery store, um, you can use a special scanner, a pit tag scanner to detect these tags. So basic idea is to identify the latrine site and to go around to uh, go around with uh, with the pit tag scanner and detect these pit tags. And the reason these pit tags are in the latrine sites is because the, they're pretty small. They're only about one centimeter in length. And oftentimes the otter will ingest the tag when they eat the sturgeon. And then latrine sites are basically, they're a little bit more complicated than this, but they're essentially where the where the otter goes poop or uh, defecates if we're being more scientific. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> um, yeah, so so that's how they, they end up in the latrine site. And then as I mentioned, these pit tags are linked to different fish and based on where we're finding these pit tags and how many we're finding, we can we can get different information on, on the fish and how much predation is going on and where. Cool. And uh, oh, just to jump in here, Kristen, um, this is the part of your thesis that you've been talking to CBC Radio for. Yeah, that's um, right. Yeah, and uh, and so I gather that you do have some results out for this side of the study. Would you mind going into what you found so far with these pit tag latrine surveys? Yeah, for sure. So we found uh, to date with about two and one, let's call it two and a third field seasons, um, is. 60 latrine sites found uh, on the Nechaco and uh, almost 1,200 pit tags found in otter latrine sites. And uh, if we compare that to the number of sturgeon released from the hatchery, it's, it only represents about 4% of sturgeon released, um, which some people look and they're like, oh, that's, that's quite a bit. But some people are like, well, it's only 4%, right? Um, but as I mentioned, these pit tags are pretty small. They're only about a centimeter in length. so. Um, actually being able to find all of them is pretty unlikely. There's, there's tons of reasons why we might not. Um, I, there's things like the, the tags might pop out when the otter is eating the sturgeon. And so it doesn't actually end up in the latrine site. Um, we found broken tags before. So obviously otters have sharp teeth so they can break the pit tags and they might not read with the reader. Um, the Nechaco has fluctuating water levels. So the otter might defecate below the high water mark and then the tags get swept down um and the kind of the big one it's a it's a big river so there's a good chance we haven't identified all the latrine sites that are out there so there's probably still still more tags out there yeah like where like i'm assuming you're mostly like on a boat whether paddling or like a jet boat like is there a section where most of the latrine sites have been or are you kind of just like going everywhere 
Yeah, so most of them have been uh, from Vanderhoof down about 30 kilometers. Um, and so this is actually an area known known to local sturgeon researchers as the as the core area. And it's basically like an area of, of known good juvenile sturgeon habitat. So it makes sense that we're finding lots of uh, sturgeon pit tags there. Um, but also compared to the rest of the river, that's where we're finding lots of uh, otter latrine sites. Um, so it kind of suggests that otter activity in that area is a lot higher um, than other sections of the river. And yeah, so there's a, a bit of a connection there. I don't know if that just means there's, again, uh, fish are kind of the main diet of otters. So it might just mean the fish population in that stretch is, is a lot higher. And that's why we're finding more otter activity in latrines there. Mm. Um, and I guess this kind of segues to one of your next questions for your project. Um, how do we know how much of the otter's diet um, the sturgeon makes up? Yeah. Did that so, question uh, make any sense? It kind of came out a little backwards. Yeah, no, I, I, <laughs> I think I get what you're saying there. So uh, I'm what some people might call a turd burglar. And, uh, and <laughs> when I go to these latrine sites, I uh, collect some uh, uh, otter scat. And from from that, we can... Uh, I haven't started this yet. I have I have my sample scat collections, but um, I hope to run some genetic analyses on these on these samples and uh, determine what what species are in these uh, in these samples um, and determine how many of them have have sturgeon in them compared to other species. Um, and yeah, so it's it's uh, something that's hasn't quite started yet, other than sample collection. But uh, I think. Uh, hopefully get some cool results from that. Is there any way for you to differentiate whether it's through genetics or like, I don't know if any uh, like naturally occurring, that's the wrong term, but uh, sturgeon get pit tags. Like, do you know if there's any otter predation on fish that are like born in stream or whatever? Yeah. So actually that's a, that's a good question. Um, probably the coolest finding we've had so far was this past summer, we found a pit tag from a sturgeon that was, uh, is a wild sturgeon um, and anytime a wild sturgeon is caught by researchers it gets implanted with a pit tag. Um, so we found this pit tag in an otter latrine site and based on the information related to that pit tag that sturgeon was at least 19 years old when it got eaten and it actually had mostly Fraser River history so it was actually it, it's potential like, uh, we don't have the genetics on it yet but uh, it's potential that was like a Fraser River fish that um came up to to the Nechako and, and got eaten up there so how wow. big is a 19 year old fish it was uh, about 70 centimeters oh yeah <laughs> yeah so that's a pretty big fish yeah and wait so does that mean that the river otters can predate such a large fish as well <laughs> yeah yeah whoa <laughs> yeah. So that's, yeah. So again, that one was at least 19 years old, and that's kind of on par with. Uh, um, so the hatchery fish grow a lot quicker just because they're fed a lot more. They're grown in conditions where they can can grow grow larger. So we actually have multiple evidence of of sturgeon that size being eaten. So there's like wow. uh, like a th a three or four year old sturgeon raised in the hatchery will be about that the same size as the 19 year old wild fish. Wow. Crazy sturgeon. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, and I guess um, maybe we'll just ask about the third 
part of your thesis. Um, you said that you were looking into um, sturgeon behavior, um, and yeah. you had some hatchery slash laboratory experiments going on. Um, would you mind diving into that a little bit? Yeah, for sure. So um, I guess a bit of background and context first. Um, so again, looking at hatchery fish, and it's pretty well researched and studied that um, a lot of hatchery fish of different species don't really have the life skills to do well in, in the wild, which kind of makes sense because fish in the wild from a young age, they're experiencing predators, you know, they, they'll, they'll encounter a predator, have a successful escape, and they'll be like, oh, I don't, don't go near that thing again, right? Um, but with fish in a hatchery, they're kind of raised in a relatively um, uneventful and, and sort of non-challenging environment um, where they're not experiencing these predators um, and food's abundant and they have no trouble trying to get food. So, um, so when they get re released into the wild, basically they, they have no experience with these predators. So they're kind of easy prey. Um, so one sort of mitigation way or mitigation method or way around that is to um, have these uh, hatchery fish experience these predators before they're released into the wild. And obviously with bringing, you can't really bring a, an actual predator into the hatchery environment just for logistical and, <laughs> and ethical reasons. <laughs> um, so, so kind of one way around that is to uh, use sense or otter sense or sorry, uh, predator sense. And um, yeah, so first you need to kind of determine if that, uh, if that hatchery fish have an innate anti-predator response to that, uh, to that predator scent. And if they do, then that's kind of a good thing. That means um, maybe just expose them to that a few times before they release into the wild and they know like, oh, um, like this is, this is bad. I like don't stay away from that predator. But in a lot of cases, these hatchery fish are again, born in a pretty uneventful um, environment. So they, they don't really recognize that scent as being a bad thing. Um, so I don't, know how, I don't know if you guys are familiar with like uh, Pavlov's dog or Pavlovian classical <laughs> yes. conditioning. Um, but basically, uh, basically how it works, or, using Pavlov's dog as an example, like, um, so you have the dog and a, if you give it a, uh, a known stimulus such as food, then it causes it to um, salivate. And uh, if uh, you have a, a not an unknown stimulus to the dog, like a, a bell, it causes no response at all. But then if you pair the two, then it, ring the bell and you feed the dog, then eventually it should make the association that um, you ring a bell and it's, it has that response that it would have if the food was there, so it would salivate. So it's kind of the essential, essentially the same thing with, uh, with the, uh, conditioning of this, uh, fish where you pair the unknown stimulus, which would be the, the predator scent with, uh, in this case, a negative stimulus where, um, it kind of elicits a, uh, anti-predator response by the fish. Um, so in scent based sort of conditioning experiments, a lot of times it's, uh, what's used is something called a, an alarm cue or a fright substance, which is basically a substance that is, uh, released from the skin of the fish when, uh, when it gets attacked by a predator and it gets released into the surrounding water and it kind of lets 
uh, the other fish in the area know that there's something bad in the area. So, so your the conditioning in a hatchery environment is basically your uh, um, you're pairing this alarm cue that they should have an innate response, anti-predator response to with an unknown predator scent, and then they kind of you're conditioning by association. So when they experience that scent in the wild, they should know to elicit this anti-predator response. So that was very long, sorry for that, but- uh, Hey, good job. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, so that brings me to my actual experiment. So that's bit, essentially what I'm doing is with the sturgeon in the hatchery is uh, I did these experiments back in, uh, back in uh, the summer of 2020 here and uh, basically first see if they have a, a response to uh, different types of otter scents, which they really didn't, um, and then see if they have a response to the sturgeon alarm cue, um, which isn't very well studied in, in literature. And the answer is it sort of seems like they do have a bit of an anti-predator response. So that's kind of good. And then um, I also did some of those conditioning experiments as, as were mentioned there and uh, of pairing like an otter scent with a sturgeon alarm cue. So I'm actually still going through that data, but so the answer is maybe they can be conditioned, but yeah. Uh, yeah. How do you quantify their response to a scent? Yeah, so I guess there's different types of anti-predator responses that they might have. So um, what I did is I, I used, I videotaped the, the response when the different scents or cues were added. And then uh, there's different behavior tracking software out there. So the one I use basically just calculates things like distance traveled and speed. So um, the, it really depends on the fish, but they can increase their behavior. They can just go crazy, swim, swim really fast, or they can actually do the opposite and kind of slow down and make themselves kind of stealth mode. Yeah. Cool. So I guess like uh, if if you can correct me if I'm wrong, but like it seems like you're like a lot of the research seems like it focuses on otters, but ultimately like the goal of the research is kind of like how can we like smarten up these sturgeon? Like is that is that right? And do you like do you have any thoughts on that? I think I remember in one interview somebody just asked you if you hate otter. Yeah. I don't really think that's like necessarily productive. Yeah. No. Yeah. I definitely got asked. I, I got asked that in one of the CBC interviews I did, and. Um, Kind of my answer to that is, yeah, kind of the ultimate goal is conservation of the sturgeon, right? But, and you can't really like look at otters as the villain because they're, they're doing what otters do and that's eat fish. So kind of the, yeah, what you need to do is is make sure you're releasing fish in, in a way that's, uh, they're, they're going to have high survival. So, so like one thing that's being done right now is re releasing fewer fish, but um, releasing them at a larger size that hopefully they would be eaten less by the otters. Um, but, uh, if that's not successful, then it might take something like these, um, pre-release conditioning type, uh, type experiments and training to, uh, to actually increase their survival once they're released.
was the track Tricky Mother Nature from Victoria artist Elon Noon. You're listening to The Abstract on CFUR 88.7 FM here in Prince George. Okay, we're back with Kale Babby here, and um, we've spent the last couple segments talking about Kale's research and um, heard about how successful and interesting your research has been so far, Kale. As successful all of that has been, you've actually done this in light of a pretty unfortunate tragedy that overcame our uh, our grad cohort this year and uh, that was the passing of our friend Dan Larson who um, is a fellow fish researcher uh, here at the university so we're wondering if you uh, wanted to share a story or thoughts about uh, Dan at all here while uh, you've got the microphone yeah for sure so uh, yeah as, as Jeremy mentioned uh, tough loss back in uh, September of, of 2020. Uh, Dan was a good friend of mine. I met him in, uh, would have been September of 2018. We both started our master's in the in the NRS program together um, and both studying fish. Both had a lot of similar interests. We became quick friends, um, which was very common with Dan. I think anyone who, who met him became friends with him pretty quick. Just nice, friendly guy. Um, just easy to talk to, super funny. Um, and yeah, again, he's a super fun and funny guy. And um, I think 
you know, he's, he's gone, but he's not forgotten. And you can uh, mm -hmm. kind of cherish his memory by sharing stories. So kind of wanted to, to share, in, in my opinion, one of my, or my opinion, what's a funny story and probably my favorite Dan story um, that kind of just speaks to the kind of person he was and uh, his, his unique sort of character. So, yeah. We should also know that there are many of these stories out there too. He's there are, quite yes. quite a character. Yeah. Yeah, no, he's uh, again. He had he had lots of friends in his in his relatively short time here. He uh, he touched a lot of people. So um, yeah, lot, lots of stories to tell. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. You can go ahead, Kale. All right. Sure. Yeah. So uh, yeah, again, this is probably my my favorite Dan story. Um, so I was uh, I was also roommates with Dan for about a year, and um, so this happened back in. Uh, it would have been late October, early November of 2019 um, when I was roommates with him. And Dan really liked fishing, hunting, um, and it wouldn't be unlike him to go uh, on a spontaneous fishing or hunting trip. Um, and this is what happened this one day. I woke up, he was gone. Um, and usually if he did that, you know, he'd be back by 8, 10 o'clock at night. he is that time and he hadn't come back um, and he's got later and later so I texted and called and still no response and you know starting to get a little bit worried but um, whenever he would go on these spontaneous trips he would do a very bad job of telling people where he was going and uh, yeah so I wouldn't didn't even know where to like if, like who to call or whatever to, to figure out where he was because he didn't who knows what direction he went in um, so, you know, kind of get worried overnight and then uh, still not back. So start contacting some mutual friends in the morning. Uh, no one's heard from him. So everyone's getting a little bit worried. Um, and then uh, I get a phone call at two o'clock in the afternoon the next day. And the phone calls from Mike Mankey, who's the uh, manager out at the Sturgeon Hatchery in Vanderhoof. And I answer it and it's Dan. And I'm like, well, I'm, I'm confused, but also kind of relieved, right? Like, it's okay, he's, he's okay, but like, what's what's going on? Why is he on Mike's phone? And so he tells me the story. So uh, anyone who knew Dan knew he he drove a Prius and he was proud to drive that Prius. He let every everyone know he drove a Prius, and uh, he would uh, he would take that that thing down roads that you know people with four by four trucks wouldn't even think about going down. Um, and so, so that's what happened. So it was the time of year when things were kind of frozen at night or in the morning and uh, kind of thawed during the day. So he, he went down these this uh, a couple roads, kind of back roads near Vanderhoof. Um, and when he's done hunting for the day, he went back and his car was stuck. So he spent like a good two hours trying to get his car unstuck, just gets covered in mud. And by this time, it's about eight o'clock at night. He can't get it out. His phone is dead. He doesn't have a charger, um, but uh, and he's far from town, so he's got to figure out what to do. And there's a farmhouse nearby, so he considers going there. But again, he's covered in mud. It's dark out. He doesn't want to. He doesn't want to like scare them. He's just a random guy, and um, so he decides to stay the night in his car, stuck in the mud. And um, yeah, and the next morning when it's light out, he goes to he goes to the uh, the farmhouse, and the first person he comes across is the farmer's like relatively young son who like is hesitantly <laughs> looking at him like he's covered in mud, right? <laughs> and uh, 
then yeah the kid goes and hesitantly gets his dad who also hesitantly comes out and talks to dan um ends up uh again hesitantly driving him into town <laughs> um but uh he ended up doing that so that was nice and then uh drops him off at the tim hortons in vanderhoof and then i guess he didn't want to go inside the store covered in mud to get a phone charger so he he walks down through downtown vanderhoof covered in mud and he stops in at the sturgeon hatchery and he talks to mike um who he only met once i had introduced him a few months earlier um, but is the only person he knew in vanderhoof and knew where they lived or where they were at so um yeah, so Mike's nice and gets him some dry clothes and lets him use his phone. And that's when he, he made the call to me. And uh, and then he ended up getting his getting a phone charger. And he, as I mentioned, he would he would uh, he would take his car down roads that like four by four trucks wouldn't wouldn't even think about going down. So yeah. he calls around to different tow tow truck companies and um, they he tells them where his car is. And they're like, Yeah, no, I'm not going <laughs> down there. Like, <laughs> <laughs> and he eventually gets someone to 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 take him out but uh um yeah uh and ends up getting his car out and drives home that night and you better believe we just gave him a hard time after that about <laughs> making sure he let, lets people know where he's going and keeps a phone charger in his phone or in his in his car there so yeah it's uh it's a fun little story about dan that i it one. seems like to people who yeah. didn't know Dan, that story seems completely outrageous. But anybody who had like met or yeah. interacted with him is like, yeah, that sounds about right. Oh, totally. Yeah. It's like, I call it a classic Dan <laughs> story just because it's like, it's something that would only happen to him. And yeah, I think like at the time of his passing when, uh, or afterwards, when people were sharing their stories, it's like, you know, you can tell a Dan story and not use his name. And anyone who knew him knew like, yeah, it was a Dan story just because, like, no one else would get themselves in that situation, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, the other cool thing uh, at the, you know, the, the storytelling that, that we had um, was just how many stories there were of Dan talking about him just getting out there into the into the wild, going hunting or going ice fishing um, at the drop of the hat. And, uh, yeah. Sounds like he was a guy that would just say yes to anything that uh, you know. If anybody had a trip going on, then he'd be on board. And uh, for sure. And uh, yeah, and and so um, as we mentioned, he was a fellow fish researcher at the university, and um, clearly hunting and fishing were part of his lifestyle. And so um, we we're wondering if uh, you wouldn't mind talking about the uh, art piece that's being commissioned at the university and his. Uh, in his honor there yeah yeah for sure so um uh first i'll give a shout out to annie pumphrey who she kind of initiated this um uh basically there's an art piece being done by local artist uh, carla joseph that's going to go out near uh just be put out uh, outside where his office was in uh building four the third floor uh kind of in the main rotunda area there um and it's basically an art piece, again, in dedication to Dan, uh, that depicts some of his, well, it depicts three fish species, I believe. So it was uh, kokanee and rainbow trout, which were the two fish species he was studying here at UNBC. Um, and then also walleye, which um, aren't found around here, but it was, he's from Minnesota and that's one of his, that was one of his favorite, uh, favorite fish to fish for back, back home. So um, included that in the mural as well. Um, 
it is not up at, at this moment. I'm not quite sure when it's going up, but I, it is the painting itself being finished or is, is finished. And uh, I've seen a picture of it and it looks amazing. Um, and just a huge shout out. So, uh, I mean, good art's not cheap. Um, so Annie set up a GoFundMe back a couple months ago to, to help pay for this. And the goal was 2,500 and it was reached in like a day and a half. Just is, is like amazing how fast people, people were able to donate and um, yeah, got that money in no time and, and uh, got a great art piece out of it. So hope to, hope to have that up soon and uh, share with the community. Yeah. 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 It was, it, I mean, as it was a huge tragedy that happened and uh, it, uh, it was kind of amazing to see how much the, our small community of grad students did rally together for it. So it was, uh, it was a, a hard and powerful time uh, when he had yeah. passed, but uh, mm -hmm. not forgotten. And I think it um, also like uh, following yeah. the GoFundMe, just like it speaks to yes, the generosity, but just like, it's so clear how many people, like got to know Dan, even though he was here for like a couple of years and like not just got to know yeah. him, but like, you know, got close with Dan. Exactly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and maybe also worth mentioning that uh, it was also a lot of grad students um, that are friends with him. Um, and uh, yeah, I, people often forget that life keeps going on while you're at grad school. And, and so, I mean, kudos to you, Kale, for doing such a great job on your thesis so far and, uh, you know, getting some media buzz around your research, um, given the circumstances. I mean, I think it's a, it's quite an accomplishment to, to go through, um, during a tragedy like on this, top so. of multiple tra yeah, tra tragedies. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, well, I guess that's a bit of a somber note to, uh, to end on, but, um, again, uh, you know, thanks so much for taking the time to uh, come in and, and speak with us, Kale. And, uh, you know, your research is, is really interesting and uh, you're really well spoken about it, too. So my favorite part about doing this show is actually getting to learn what the other grad students are, are doing. So uh, thanks for uh, taking the time to explain it to us. Yeah, for sure. Thanks for having me.
track by the Wisconsin artist Boney Vare called PDLIF, Please Don't Live in Fear. And that was a track chosen specifically in remembrance of our good friend, Dan Larson. Well, that's it for today's episode. And uh, aside from hearing about Kale's really interesting research, um, I hope that this one kind of shows that uh, we uh, lowly grad students uh, still have to deal with normal life events while we're while we're doing this uh, research, and um, yeah, it 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 takes a lot from people to uh, get through these uh, events while you're under the high pressure of research. Sometimes, yeah, I think Kale just does a really good job uh, talking about his research in a way that we can all kind of understand what's going on. Um, and it was really enjoyable to just you know reminisce some of these stories about Dan. Um, and I hope that some of the people listening, who I know we're also really close to Dan and this group uh, found some joy in that as well. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. As always, we're open to suggestions from our audience. Uh, We recently had some great back and forth on social media with some great suggestions. So uh, feel free to reach out to us if you'd like to come on the show. So thanks everyone for listening and we will catch you in a couple weeks. Hi again, just one more quick update. The art piece that Kale mentions in this show for Dan It might not actually end up out by his office. It may end up in the library at UMBC. So keep your ears open for that. I'd also like to note that our theme music is named Comfort Food from Boom Baptist. See you next time.